And our second reading is from the book of Ruth, chapter 3. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative with whose young woman you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your cloak, and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies, then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, All that you say, I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. He said, Who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread the corner of your garment over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And he said, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, in that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask. For all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And now it is true that I am a redeemer. Yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight and in the morning, if he will redeem you, good. Let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then, as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning." So she lay at his feet until the morning, but arose before one could recognize another. And he said, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. And he said, bring the garment you are wearing and hold it out. So she held it, and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. Then she went into the city. And when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, how did you fare, my daughter? Then she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, These six measures of barley he gave to me, for he said to me, You must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. She replied, Wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out, <clears throat> for the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. The word of the Lord. Most of us uh, have a great love of the Christmas stories. We're in that Christmas season. We're actually supposed to be in Advent season. Uh, we shouldn't have all these trees up, really, if we were doing this really properly Adventy. But the school, thankfully, had their decorations up for some concerts this week, so we decided, let's, let's enjoy this. But we love these Christmas stories, and, and if you go into the, the Christmas narrative of that first Christmas in particular, it's just a great narrative of uh, an old man and an older woman, the barren one, and then this priest who goes in and has a vision of the Lord, and he's going to have a, a baby, and, and he's struck dumb. He can't speak. There's another one of a, of a young teenage girl who has a, a, an announcement to her from an angel. 
There's a, a Caesar who's sending people all over the world, and then there are shepherds abiding in their field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And lo, behold, the angel of the Lord, you know. These phrases, these images are just beautiful. And they, they're stories that we read at this time of year and as the Christmas season approaches, along with the carols that we sing and the movies we love with all of their characters, right? It's, you know, Buddy the Elf and it's George Bailey and it's Ralphie and it's Scott Farkas and it's all these things that just blow your mind and draw you in and you want to be a part of the stories. And that's actually what it is. We want to be a part of these stories. We want to be a part of a story that compels us, that draws us in. We've talked about that for weeks here. Back to when we were in the beginning of Genesis, we were talking about what story are we in? And we are the sort of people in our day who, who need a story because stories are how we make sense of the life that we are living. It's how we get a sense of purpose and direction. It's how I understand who I am. And of course, the way that we approach it nowadays is that each one of us thinks this is my story. This is my story to live. This is my story to write. My story to tell. And so we have seven billion individual stories. But Christianity and the Bible makes the claim that there are not seven billion stories. There is one story, the story. It's the story of the God who created and redeems all things. It is a story of the creation that goes into a darkness of the fall and then God's long-awaited plan of redemption and the hope that we still live for of the restoration of all things under his lordship. The claim of Christianity is that we find our story inside of the story, his story. Well, Ruth is just such a story. Ruth that we've been looking at over the past couple of weeks is a story within the story, God's story. And it's a story that invites us to see our own personal story inside of the one true story. It's a story, as Dean has talked about the past two weeks, of chesed. Chesed is loving kindness. If you have a Bible and you open it up, you would read loving kindness. That's the translation of this Hebrew word chesed. It's this powerful word that talks about covenant loyalty and faithfulness, community loyalty and faithfulness. The New Testament doesn't have an equivalent, except that a lot of New Testament writers talk about words like grace, agape love, as the New Testament equivalent of hesed. This is a gospel term of faithfulness. In the Old Testament, basically, there's no character who's truly faithful. There just isn't, except for actually Ruth and Boaz. They might be the only two characters in the Bible outside of Jesus who are presented as wholly faithful. Our plan this morning is to look at Ruth chapter 3, the story inside of the story, and to see how it reveals these lives of faithfulness being played out in a remarkable way, in the way that God's unfolding story is being revealed through their lives and invites us to find our stories inside of his story. So let me begin by reading, rereading Ruth chapter three, just the first five verses. Then Naomi, Ruth's mother-in-law, said to her, my daughter, should I not seek rest for you? that it may be well with you. Is not Boaz our relative, with whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. 
Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your cloak, and go down to the threshing floor, but do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. When he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, all that you say, I will do. So if you were not here the past two weeks, or just as a reminder, in Ruth chapter 1, this is a narrative in four acts. In, 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 in Ruth chapter 1, act 1, we have Ruth is married to a guy named Elimelech. A famine comes. They go with their two sons to the land of Moab, which you should never do in the midst of the famine. The two sons and the dad die, and there are three widows left. And then Naomi returns to the land of Bethlehem along with one of her daughters-in-law, Ruth. So Naomi and Ruth come back. They are both widows. They are both in grief and loss. But when they get there, it's the time of the barley harvest, end of Act 1. Act 2 begins with Ruth going out to glean in the fields, a dangerous thing for a single woman who has no protectorate to do. But she ends up in the field of Boaz, who is a faithful man. And he, she gleans and works in those fields, gathers food, comes back, and Naomi's like, oh, Boaz, stay in his field. He is one of our relatives, a redeemer, somebody who can act on our behalf. And then we get to Ruth chapter 3. And Naomi, we read, has a plan. She's like, Ruth, look, you've been in mourning for a long time. You've come with me. It's time to get you married. That's basically what she's saying in Ruth chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. It's time to get you married. I want you to go to Boaz. He can help. Now, just to be clear, she doesn't say go to Boaz because he's going to marry you. Go to Boaz because he's somebody who can advocate on our behalf. But here's what I want you to do. I want you to wash and anoint yourself and put on, it says a cloak, but actually the English Standard Version has a bad translation there. I think it's really just new clothes, okay? What's going on here is that she is, most commentators are pretty clear that in, uh, and Lucia, you can put the verses back up again, just verses one through five. Um, she puts, she says like, put, do these, all these things, wash, anoint, put on a new cloak, and what she's doing is she's letting it be known that her days of mourning are over. So we don't do this very often, but in the ancient cultures and in some parts of the world, after a death, you wear clothes that let everyone know that you are in mourning. You are grieving still. Grieving could have gone on for months or even years in that culture. So presumably, Ruth has been in grieving, in mourning, indicating to everyone that she is a widow. And Naomi says, it's time. It's time to put on your new clothes, to go back to the clothes to say that you're no longer a widow. You're now available. Anoint yourself, perfume yourself, put on normal clothes, clean clothes. Your days of mourning are over. And then I want you to go to the threshing floor where they're taking the barley and turning it into grain. And when, after Boaz has eaten and drank and fallen asleep, lie down next to him, but uncover his feet and do whatever he says. At which point Ruth should have said, do what? Now for us, it's just weird. But for her, all of what was being told to her was very provocative and dangerous. You see, threshing floors were not places you went to hang out if you were a single woman. They were associated with sexual activity in that day and age because they were celebratory times when the men were away from their families. They were eating and drinking probably too much. And it's known by some commentators that it was a place that prostitutes visited. 
knowing that this was the time if you wanted to get somebody by themselves. And Ruth is not somebody who's going with an entourage. Ruth is a single woman. And on top of that, according to the ancient way of understanding things, the Old Testament way of understanding things, there were four of the most vulnerable people in ancient Israel that you were supposed to protect. But the most vulnerable were the poor and the fatherless and the widow and the foreigner. And Ruth is all four of those things. She is poor. She is a widow. She is a foreigner. And because she has no, neither father nor brother to be an advocate and protector for her, she is fatherless. Go in complete and total vulnerability. And this is a time, as we read in the beginning uh, of Ruth chapter 1, this was during the time of the judges. If you go back and read the book of Judges, the book of Judges is a time when everyone did what was good in their own eyes. It was a time of lawlessness where there was no rule of law and nobody cared about the covenant. So in a time of lawlessness, when everyone does whatever they want, you, a completely vulnerable woman, go up to the threshing floor. You know, the threshing floor. Ruth, in her faithfulness, is continually risking herself for the sake of others and for the sake of faithfulness. She risks when she leaves her home of origin and follows Naomi to Bethlehem, a dangerous city, especially for a foreigner. She risks when she goes out in Ruth chapter 2 to work in the fields in order just to scavenge enough food for them to not starve to death. Because when she is in those fields, she could be assaulted and there would be no rule of law, no protector for her. And she risks when she goes willingly to the threshing floor to appeal to Boaz. Ruth's faithfulness and commitment to Naomi gets her to answer all that you say, I will do. And then we read what she does in verses six through eight. It says, and so Ruth went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk, and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. And at midnight, the man was startled and turned over. And behold, a woman lay at his feet. There is some amount of surprise that's supposed to go on there. That word behold is look, hark, low, you know, an angel of the Lord or a woman at your feet. This old guy is just lying down there. He's gone to bed full and then can't tell who it is. Some woman's at his feet. The whole scene, especially for an ancient reader, is incredibly sexually charged. It's very provocative. The reader expects that in this moment, something illicit is going to happen. Something bad is going to happen or something romantic is going to happen or some combination of the two. Everything about the descriptions would get them knowing where this was going. As one commentator put it, Daniel Block, he said, given the spiritual climate in the period of the judges, an average Israelite might welcome the night visit of a woman interpreting it as an offer of sex. 
But Boaz is not an average Israelite. Nor is Ruth an average woman. They do not do what everyone else would have done in that situation. They counter the assumed narrative of the cultural reader of that day. The question that it's begging us to ask of ourselves is what will you do, what do we do, when an opportunity is before you that is completely accepted and normal in our cultural day and age, when everyone else would do something, but it's not in line with what God says? What will you do when what God says is not what everyone knows you're allowed to do? It's okay to do. Everyone does it. Boaz, it's okay. You can do this. You can do whatever you want. She's just a foreigner. She's just a widow. This is what we all do. You know what you will do when an opportunity is before you? You will do whatever you want. That's what you're going to do. That's what I'm going to do too. We all will do whatever we want. And so the question is, it's really a question of desires. What do you want? What do you love? Are you being formed by what everyone says and thinks? What everyone does? Or by God's word? Boaz, it's clear, has been shaped by the Lord and his covenant. And so he does not desire to take advantage of Ruth or this situation. He follows the Lord in this moment, even if no one else would have. And of course, Ruth is not actually offering herself. She's appealing to him. You see, both of these people live in integrity and with character. Integrity is what you will do when no one else is around. When this moment, no one else is around, and both of them act with integrity. And both of them have built that integrity on a life that is cultivating character. Character is a life of integrity. It's desires conformed to God that are cultivated over time. The habits that you engage in on a daily basis, the decisions that you make day in and day out, are shaping your values and your desires and your loves and therefore your will. You will do whatever you want. So the question is, who or what is shaping your wants? The Lord or what everyone else will do? So, they walk in integrity. And Boaz says, who is this at my feet? And Ruth responds in verse 9, I'm your servant, Ruth. Spread your wings over me, she says. Cover me with the corner of your garment. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. Spread your wings over your servant was an idiom for, will you marry me? It's almost like, hey, do you want to tie the knot? Do you want to get hitched? Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. 
in this moment, she's doing something that is very bold and, and brave and courageous. She's saying, Boaz, will you marry me? And you're a redeemer. Will you redeem my dead husband's family? Restore his place and honor in the community. What she's doing is very boldly asking Boaz to be the answer to his own prayer for her in chapter two. In chapter two, when Boaz meets Ruth, he blesses her as Dean talked about last week. And listen to the words that Boaz says to her in Ruth chapter two, verse 12. May the Lord repay you, Ruth, for what you have done to your mother-in-law, for your mother-in-law, and a full reward be given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. That was his prayer and blessing on Ruth. And Ruth now is saying to him in this very moment, in the darkness of the night, Boaz, will you be the one to repay and reward me? Will you be the wings of the covenant God to cover over me and my family? Will you be the redeemer that you were made to be, Boaz? She's calling him to godly hesed, to loving faithfulness and loyalty. This is incredibly risky on her behalf. She has a lot to lose. On one level, she could, just lose, she could just lose because she gets rejected, like romantically. Will you marry me? No, I don't want to marry you. Or more likely, she could be completely humiliated, cast out as a woman who is far too forward and not in a place to be doing this. This was a culture where status difference was incredibly important. And what you had here is a contrast of one of the most powerful people in the community and one of the most weak and vulnerable she is a servant, he is a master. She is a foreigner, she, he is native. She is a woman, he is a man. He is a landowner who has rights and power and she is completely and totally vulnerable. She has nothing to stand on. The status difference makes it also so that she should not be asking him to marry her. Everything about it was incredibly risky. But what she's doing here, she's acting boldly because she's acting out of hesed. Again, loyalty and faithfulness, not for herself. She's not doing this because like, hey, I want romance and this will be great. Let's get married. Come on. She, she's saying, I need to protect Naomi and the honor of my family, my dead husband's family. I'm going to do what is right. Will you marry me and be the redeemer of my family that I've married into. And Boaz's reply in verses 10 through 13, he said, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first in which you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask for all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And now it is true that I am a redeemer, yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. So remain tonight, and in the morning, if he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. 
this last kindness, he says, is greater than the first. That word kindness is actually directly hesed. And he's saying, at first you left everything to follow and care for Naomi. What a great gift. But now I see that you are not only caring for Naomi's future, but you're caring for your dead husband's future. What great kindness. And on top of that, you've not gone after the eligible men. Ruth was really being set up by, by Naomi just to go get married. But she's not going after love and romance or money. She's completely selfless in this act. And so Boaz says to her, do not fear, I will do it. For all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. Now think about that just for a minute. That word worthy woman, by the way, is that same thing in Proverbs 31 about a woman of noble character. So nobility, noble character, worthy, upright, righteous. You are a worthy woman. She had only been in Bethlehem for a few weeks. And she was a destitute foreign woman. She came in as the lowest of the low. She was at the mercy of everyone. She had no agency except to be able to scavenge for food in people's fields. But her devotion to Naomi and her willingness to abandon all for the sake of her family reveals her character. As Daniel Block, the commentator I said earlier, quoted earlier, wrote, she did not gain this reputation by trying to be somebody. It was her self-effacing embodiment of Israel's lofty covenant standards, her hesed, her kindness and loyalty to the family of her deceased husband, especially her mother-in-law, that one has won the praise of all. She's not trying to be somebody. You know what she's not doing? She's not self-promoting. She's not out in the field gleaning on behalf of her mother-in-law, taking photos and being like, let's post that to Instagram, just a little TikTok. Hey, everybody on Twitter, did you see what I did? Come on. Pretty great. What does she do? She works all day in a field and cares for an old woman. doesn't self-promote. She's not trying to gain a reputation. She does what is right selflessly. The end. Day in and day out. You are a worthy woman. And Boaz says, well, she proposes to Boaz. It's like she's getting down on one knee when she uncovers his feet and then says, hey, will you? He said, yes. All right. I want to marry you too, but, but there's this thing about redemption and the redemption thing is I must do the right thing. I must make sure that you are redeemed and Naomi is redeemed and your dead husband's family is redeemed. And there is a redeemer, uh, which was a technical legal term in that day and age, who is closer, but he makes a promise, an oath. He makes a promise on God's name in verse 13. As Yahweh lives, if he will not redeem you, I will redeem you. And then Boaz says something. He says, stay here for the night. And the reason he does that is to protect her honor and his and to protect her if she goes out at night as a single woman. The fact that she got there safely doesn't mean she's going to get home safely during that time of the year or in the time of the judges. 
And then as she's going out, he provides all this grain in this sack for her, sends her back because he wants to provide generously for them, and as a pledge that he's going to take care of everything. Ruth returns to Naomi, and everything that she tells her, including the grain, is more than Naomi could have hoped for. Naomi was just hoping that Ruth would find a husband who'd be great, and maybe she'd, like, survive. She did not expect that Ruth was going to go and advocate on her behalf to ask Boaz to marry her and seek the redemption of Elimelech's family line. And Naomi says, oh, thank the Lord you've gone to Boaz, a faithful man who is going to see to it that justice is served and we are redeemed. Wait here. He will do it. Ruth has cast everything. Now she must wait. Kelly Minter sums it up in her study on Ruth when she said, Ruth has cast her life, her future, and even the legacy of her deceased husband at the feet of Boaz. There was nothing to do now but rest and wait. And the scene ends. It's the end of Act 3. In Act 4, and I'm going to kind of touch on it before Dean does next week, Boaz goes to the city gate, which is where all justice was done. It was where courts were held because the patriarchs would gather at maybe once a week or at the evening time, and they would decide court cases or things that needed to be done. So he goes there, in, and he, he gets what the, the redeemer, the one who was closer, it's actually the word goel, so it's a technical term in Israel, the word goel in, in Ruth chapter 4. And it's the term redeemer. So the goel is the redeemer. He says to the goel, the redeemer, in front of the, he gathers the court and he says, okay, do you want to redeem the land of Elimelech? Naomi, the, the widow, her land, the, their land, do you want to pay for it and restore it to the clan so that the honor of the family continues on. And the Goel, the Redeemer, says, yes, I would like to buy the land. I want some more land. That sounds great. And then he adds this thing, but on the day that you buy the land, you must also marry Ruth, the Boabite, the foreigner, in order to carry on the legacy, the heritage of the dead husband's name. At which point, the Goel says, no, thank you. And then he does this really weird thing where he takes off his sandal and hands it, um, hands it to Boaz. So why does he not want to do this? Honestly, it was because the cost was too high. And the cost was not marrying Ruth, this young woman. The cost was that in the process of what's being done here, Boaz is making sure that whoever marries Ruth also purchases the land that Elimelech and his family had had to sell off, restoring it to the proper clan, and then slightly complicated, whoever marries Ruth, whatever son is born to her will not be considered that husband's son. It'll be considered the dead husband's son. So Boaz has a son by Ruth. In a sense, it is Elimelech's grandson. And all the land will return to that son and not be in your family's line. Meaning you have to pay for the land but you don't get to keep it. You have to marry this woman and have children, but they're not your children. There's no honor in that. There's no wealth in that. It's purely cost in order to do the right thing. And Boaz, of course, says, I will do it. I will redeem. 
Bruce Waltke, an Old Testament scholar, in his commentary on the book of Proverbs, identifies the difference between the wicked and the righteous in the Old Testament. This is what he says. The wicked in the Old Testament advantage themselves by disadvantaging others, but the righteous disadvantage themselves to advantage others. The righteous disadvantage themselves for the good of others. They lose for the sake of a greater win. This is what Boaz is doing. He's acting with hesed, loving kindness and faithfulness and sacrificial generosity. And so he's willing to marry Ruth and buy the land at great cost to himself, even though in the end he will lose it all. Of course, it's pointing to not just this Goel, not just the faithful Goel that Boaz was, but to the true Goel. You know, in Luke chapter 7 that we had read as well, there was another needy woman who comes in the midst of an all-guy party when everyone's been eating and drinking, and she falls at the feet of a redeemer, and she, instead of washing and anointing herself, washes and anoints his uncovered feet. See what's happening? And all that she's doing is incredibly scandalous because she is a sinful woman, a prostitute who's come to the feet of this Redeemer, carrying out acts that are scandalous. But she is not like Ruth. This woman is not worthy. She is not a woman of character. She is identified in Luke 7 as a sinner. But she knew her need, and she trusted the Redeemer in Luke 7's loving kindness. And so she falls at the feet of Jesus. And Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. I have redeemed you. Jesus is the true Goel who redeems us at great cost to himself. In Mark 10, Jesus said, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom. That means a payment for redemption for our sins. It's a ransom for many. The chesed we need is not just that of a family or a friend or someone to seek justice on our behalf, though we do all need that, and we need that in our lives. We need people that are chesed people in our lives, and we need to be that for other people, people who disadvantage themselves for the sake of others. But the chesed we truly need is God's gift for us in his son, Jesus Christ, which is not just for those who are worthy, but it's for those of us who in this room feel more like the sinful woman who don't have much to offer. The beginning of the book of Ruth, Ruth says this. She says to her mother-in-law, Naomi, where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. Ruth had learned enough in her time of marriage to this family, learned enough about Yahweh the God of Israel and his covenant, that she wanted to be a part of this God's story, to be with his people, 
Little could she know that God's story included not only her redemption and Naomi's, but the redemption of the entire people of Israel through her grandchild, the one she would have with Boaz, David, the king. And not only the redemption of Israel, but the redemption of the whole world through her great, 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 great grandson, Jesus. What story do you want to be in? You want to write your own story? Ruth believed it was better to be a widow and a beggar in the story of God and God's people. And so she risked courageously and she loved sacrificially and she walked faithfully into God's story. Let's pray. God, let us be captivated by the story of Ruth and how it points to your greater story of redemption in Christ Jesus. May we lay ourselves down before you as Ruth did to Boaz, as the sinful woman did to Jesus, and say, we need you. We need your mercy and your redemption, all that you have to offer. And then form us into faithful people who will love and give and serve and willingly disadvantage ourselves for the sake of others. In the name of the true Goel, the true Redeemer, we pray. Amen. to